So if you're with us this morning as a visitor, we've been studying through the book of the Psalms in a series that we have called Seeing a New Song. Um, And one of the hopes and goals in this series is that we would see uh, the book of Psalms as a a unified book that is giving us a certain message. Much like the Apostle Paul had a purpose in the letter that he wrote to Philippi, so the book of Psalms has a purpose and a message. And so we've been looking at uh, kind of the beginning and ends of the books within the Psalms. So within the Psalms, there are five books. And so we've been looking kind of at the beginning or the end of each of those books and seeing kind of the shape that they have uh, to get a better sense, a, like a 30,000 foot view of uh, what is the book of the Psalms doing? How is it pointing us to Jesus? And how can we pray these Psalms uh, as Christians? And so today we are in Psalm 91. Uh, as I was thinking about Psalm 91, I, I kept coming back to a, a piece of advice that I got from my dad when I was a young kid. My dad would say, son, if something sounds too good to be true, then it's probably too good to be true. And so what my dad was trying to do from a very early age is protect me from the many dangers that are in our world. Unfortunately, there are people in this world that would seek to make a quick buck or take advantage of people. And one of the ways that they do that is they sweeten the deal. They make things sound so good, they pile promise on top of promise on top of promise that you think, man, I, I really want that. And hear my dad's wisdom. If it sounds too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true. There's probably a catch somewhere. Um, And I remember uh, having a a similar feeling of uh, expectations being raised, being built up, and then those expectations not being met. And so again, there's this feeling of when, when promises are made, There's expectations that follow. And if there isn't ever deliverance on those promises, there's disappointment and there's hurt. I remember, again, being a kid, uh, my my parents planned a trip to Disney World. And they had planned this trip uh, for a long time. Going to Disney World is an expensive endeavor. So they, they planned, they paid money, and then they began to hype it up to us kids. They began to tell us all of the things that we would get to do and all of the things that we would get to see. Roller coasters and uh, different rides. And remember, the expectation was getting built and built and built of how much fun we were going to have as a family at Disney World. So being a young kid, I got excited and started dreaming and envisioning Myself at Disney World on these roller coasters and having the time of my life. Only to realize that to have the fun at Disney World, you need to be a certain height. And I was not that height. And so for a week, I watched my older sister, my parents, the people that we were with. I watched them have fun for a week while I sat in the park in the heat. 
Expectations were up here, and I was down here. And so as I was thinking about Psalm 91, Psalm 91 takes the expectations through the roof. The promises made in this psalm may be some of the greatest and loftiest promises in the whole book of Psalms. He says, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. And and one commentator even raised the right question, does God promise too much in this psalm? Is is God setting the expectation so high that it's just setting people up for disappointment and bitterness? I mean, it doesn't take long. Just reflect on the prayer requests that Randy put before us. We have people that are sick in our church. And yet here in the promise, no plague shall be allowed to overtake you. So this morning, I, I hope that you will be able to see that God does not promise too much in Psalm 91. But the promises made in this psalm are true. That the one who abides in the shadow of the Almighty will in fact be delivered from every threat, sickness, and evil. Because the Lord will protect and provide for His children. Ultimately though, this psalm is True, and we receive these promises because Jesus is the one who abides in the shadow of the Almighty. This psalm is pointing to Jesus. And so it is through Him that these promises are true. And so in order to get a better glimpse at this psalm, it's helpful to take a step back and adjust ourselves to what's going on in the book of Psalms. If you have your Bible, uh, mine is on the same page, just a little bit to the left. If you look just above Psalm 90, your Bible will probably say book 4. If it doesn't say that, uh, that is there. Uh, That is, uh, Psalm 90 begins the fourth out of five books in the Psalms, and what we've been seeing this summer is that there is a rough chronology within these first five books. Books one and two focus primarily on David as king. And then book three, we looked at briefly last week, Psalm 73. And Psalm 73 begins on, on a different note. You may remember last week in Derek's sermon that Psalm 73 begins by talking about the success of the wicked. Talking about the prosperity of the enemy. And the psalmist is wrestling. He's struggling. He's an Israelite. He's supposed to be blessed by God and yet he doesn't seem to see blessing but the nations around Israel seem to see only blessing. So that's where Psalm 73 starts and the trajectory in book 3 is... David is no longer king, and it's looking at Israel's history, the kings that follow David. And so Psalm 89 is the last book in book 3, and I want to just read a couple verses, and I promise this comes back to Psalm 91. Just a few verses from Psalm 89 to help us understand the context of Psalm 91. So I'm reading verses 39 and 40 if you want to follow along. 
Psalm 89, verse 39. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid its strongholds in ruins. This is the ending of of Psalm 89. This is the ending of book 3. We end book 3 with Israel being conquered. With the walls of Jerusalem sitting in rubble, in ashes. God enacting judgment on His people through the Babylonians. Some of us may remember the shock and the horror of 9-11. You may remember where you were that day when you got news that someone had flown a plane into the towers. You may remember even what you wore or what you ate. We all remember that sinking feeling of being attacked on our home country. Imagine being an Israelite and seeing the walls in front of you being crushed. You were God's chosen people. And yet here you are sitting in ashes, in rubble. And so book four opens with a psalm of Moses. And again, you may remember When God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, God called Moses up to the mountain. God met with Moses. God wrote with his own finger in the tablets of stone. And the Israelites made a golden calf. And they worshiped that golden calf. And they experienced God's judgment. And what happened is Moses immediately went back and began to intercede for Israel. So what you have in Psalm 90 is recalling Moses' interceding for the Israelites. And then you have Psalm 91. And Psalm 91, in all of its focus on victory, on deliverance, on protection. I mean, imagine being an Israelite, maybe, maybe en route to Babylon, and then reading Psalm 91. Thinking, okay, Lord, help me out. Help me understand this. What book four is doing is reminding us that God dwells in heaven and his kingdom is global in its scope. And so while Israel is shaken, God is not shaken. And so we will see as we look at this psalm We'll see uh, four things. We'll see the the shadow of the Almighty. We'll see the psalmist place his hope in the Almighty. And then we'll see the Lord protect and then provide and then make promises. So the Lord will protect, provide, and make promises. And so the psalmist begins in verse 1 by saying that he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. To dwell is to call that place your home. If you dwell somewhere, that means that's the place where you wake up 
that's the place where you go to bed. And if you've had any kind of uh, renovations ever done on your house, or maybe you just bought a house and your painting and boxes are still piled high, maybe it doesn't feel like it's your home. But if that's where you wake up, and that's where you go to bed, that's your dwelling. And the psalmist says, he who dwells with the Most High. There's a picture that's being painted for us. It's, this isn't just a, a once-a-week activity of waking up thinking, today the weather's nice, I'm going to go to church. This is describing a pattern of life, day and night, dwelling with the Most High. And to abide in the shadow, well, a shadow comes from what? Well, it comes from a person. So to abide in the shadow of the Almighty is to look like, is to resemble, it's to keep yourself within the Almighty. And so the one who dwells, who meditates on God's Word, and then who obeys God's Word, who abides in the shadow of the Almighty. And then in verse 2 it says, I will say. So verse 1 it's He, and then verse 2 it's I. I think He is an example to I in verse 2. So I in verse 2 is seeing the example there in verse 1 and causing him to say, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So there's the psalmist who's looking at this person who's abiding in the shadow of the Almighty. God Almighty revealed Himself as Almighty to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You may remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They didn't have a home. They wandered about. They were nomads. And God, to those nomadic people, revealed Himself as Almighty. And so as Israel has suffered defeat and judgment, they're going back to what God has done in the past. If God was almighty to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then He can be almighty to us in our state right now. And if God could do that in the past, then He can certainly do that today for His children today. He can be God almighty, protector, provider. And so some of you may be going through some sort of suffering right now. Israel found itself with the walls of the city crumbled. And they go back to God Almighty. Where are you placing your trust this morning? Are you going back to God Almighty who has proven Himself time and time again? Are you looking somewhere else? We'll see the Almighty protects. The Almighty protects. He protects from deadly traps. He says in verse 3, He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. The fowler is a, it's a bird hunter. And so bird hunters would lay these traps and they would camouflage them so that way the bird would not see the danger that he was flying into. The Lord protects His people from these deadly traps. Laid by the wicked. The Lord protects from disease. 
He says, he says in verse 5 and 6, You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the air that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness. Again, as a city in the ancient world was attacked and conquered, one of the ways they would do that is by siege. So cities had walls that surrounded it, and so opposing armies, they would just simply block off the entrances and the exits to the city, and they would keep everybody trapped in. Well, imagine if disease breaks out within that city. There's no real place to quarantine there. Everybody's kind of packed in on one another, and disease can spread quickly and rapidly. Or maybe this psalm is written during a time in exile, when Israel's in a totally new country, in a new culture, no doubt exposed to maybe new diseases that they'd never been exposed to, that they didn't really have immunity for. You think about when they came and settled America. I mean, how many people uh, brought diseases here that that the Native Americans, they they didn't have immunity to? That kind of cross-cultural movement can be deadly by way of disease. And yet, the Almighty protects says the pestilence that stalks in darkness you will be delivered from. And then protects from war as well. You saw that in verse 5. From the terror of the night or the arrows that fly by day. Again, try imagine going to sleep at night wondering, well, our walls, our defenses are pretty weak. Is this, is this the night that the enemy is coming in? Hard to get a good night of sleep. Or in day, when you would expect an attack to come, the arrows that fly by day. And the Lord, the Almighty, protects His people, protects the one who abides in the shadow of the Almighty from war, from pestilence, and from traps. So that's the promises made in verses 3-8, through that the Lord will protect But not only does the Lord protect, the Lord provides. You see that in verses 9 through 13. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you. 11 through 13 is the explanation of how God will protect his people because God will provide for his people. He will provide angels for his people to guard them and protect them in all of their ways. Angels are, uh, they function a number of, they have a number of purposes in the Bible. One of them is to serve and minister to God's people. And that's the promise made here is that the angels will be sent to protect the one who abides in the shadow of the Almighty. And not just like protect on like the big things, but even like stubbing your toe on a rock, like even the little things. So the psalmist begins to describe the supernatural means that God will use to protect his people. But God's provision isn't just defensive here. It isn't just deliverance. It's also 
offensive. God gives his people something. He says in verse 13, you will tread on the lion and the adder or a viper. A lion and adder is used in, in the Old Testament to, to talk about the wicked or the, the enemies of God. And so when the psalmist uses this language, he's saying, you will be victorious over your enemies. Again, the context here. Don't forget the context. Israel, Jerusalem lie in ruins. And the psalmist in Psalm 91 says that you will trample, you will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent, you will trample underfoot. You will be victorious, the one who abides in the shadow of the Almighty. So the Lord, or the Almighty, protects, but the Almighty provides. And then we see the Almighty promises. The Almighty makes promises. In verse 14, he says, Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. This is the Lord speaking. Because he, again the one that we've been looking at in this psalm, because he holds fast to me, I will deliver him. This language is it's not works-based. You might be tempted to hear that as, uh, this person works hard, and so God then saves him because of his hard work of clinging to me. But that's not the language that's going on. The language here is actually more uh, covenantal. It's more like marriage. In traditional wedding vows, one of the things that's said is, uh, do you promise to have, to the man or to the woman, uh, to have and to hold so long as you both shall live? And that's the language there of marriage, to have and to hold, to come together, to cling to. And so the language here is that the one who abides in the shadow of the Almighty is faithful in his covenantal obedience. And therefore God is faithful in the covenant as well. So you have this intimate relational Statement made in verse 14. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. The psalmist has already used four names for God. In verses 1 and 2, it's the Most High, Almighty, Lord, and my God. But because he knows my name, I will protect him, says the Lord. He doesn't just know about God. He doesn't just know because his parents told him that God is real, God is true, you can only be saved by believing in Jesus. He doesn't just have a mental knowledge of God, but he, he has a heart-transformed knowledge of God. He knows my name. He clings to me. Therefore, I will deliver him says the Lord. And so we ask again, does God promise too much in this psalm? 
Does God really deliver from every disease and every evil? Does He really satisfy? The answer, of course, is God does not promise too much. God does not promise too much because Jesus is the He that's talked about in Psalm 91. The Apostle Paul says, all of the promises of God find their yes in Him. And you see this clearly in verses 11 through 13. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 4. I want you to see that this psalm is in fact pointing to Jesus. So Matthew chapter 4, the first 11 verses are Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And you'll recall that Satan tempts Jesus on three different occasions, in three different ways, tempting to cause Jesus to stumble and to sin. And so in verse 5, I'll read starting there. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, Jesus, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. There it is. Psalm 91 Verses 11 and 12, Satan citing that to Jesus, saying, Jesus, if, if you're the one in Psalm 91, just, just throw yourself down. God's already promised to send his angels to make sure that your toe doesn't even get stubbed in the process. Jesus says, Jesus said to him, again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus does not give in to Satan's temptation. Satan's temptation to Jesus was to step out from the shadow. Make a name for yourself, Jesus. Step out. And Jesus said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Quoting another passage in Scripture. When Jesus said that, Jesus resisted the temptation and cited the Scripture in its true meaning. He revealed at least two things that are important for you and are important for me this morning. The first is, you must abide in Christ. You must abide in Christ. Satan's temptation in Matthew 4 was a temptation of identity. Satan began by telling Jesus, if you are the Son of God. Satan was trying to cast that in doubt. I mean, maybe that's what people were saying about you, Jesus, but if that's really who you are, then you'll actually prove it begins to stir up this sense of 
Are you actually who you say you are? And if you are, then you need to prove it. And our temptation is similar to this with an important difference. Jesus was tempted with his perfection. Satan said, if you're the son of God, then you'll do this and this will happen because you are in fact the son of God. Our temptation is different in that we're tempted with our imperfection. But we hear it in a similar way. Our temptation goes something like, well, if you were really a child of God, then you wouldn't have said that. You wouldn't have made that joke. If you were really a child of God, you, you wouldn't have done that the other day at the office. God doesn't really love you because, after all, by this point, you, you ought to really know better. Because if you were a child of God, then you would do this. You would pray more. You'd read your Bible more. So Satan tempts believers by calling into question their identity of who they are in Christ with the goal of getting believers to step out of the shadow of Christ and come out and stand by themselves on their own where we're weak and vulnerable and open to every sort of attack. And so just as Jesus stayed in the shadow as he obeyed God, not Satan, So we must abide in Christ. We must take hold of Christ's word and realize who he has said we are. Jesus says in John chapter 15, abide in me and I in you, or remain in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus is saying if you you're not abiding in me, you're going to wither and die because you can't sustain yourself. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We are to remain in God. We are to continue obeying His Word, trusting that God's ways really are better than our ways and really are better than any ways that the world tells us. And remembering that that is actually the path to joy. Jesus says in John 15, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that your joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Abiding in Christ, obeying Christ and His commandments is not the path to drudgery, but joy. And so we fight sin by remembering that obeying Christ is actually better. It's more joyful. It's long-lasting. There isn't the accompanying regret of knowing that once again you have to confess and once again you have to plead for the Lord to cleanse you. Abiding in Christ is the path to joy. That's exactly what Jesus demonstrated when he resisted Satan's temptation. 
that it's better to be in the shadow of the Almighty than in the open field by yourself. And the second thing that Jesus is resisting the temptation there means for you is that our battle against sin is a done deal. That we aren't fighting against sin as a dilapidated, weak army that has no resources, that you have no idea how in the world they're still in the battle, but they're, they're still there. Well, that's not how the Christian life is. Jesus resisted Satan. We did not. Israel did not. Adam did not. But Jesus did. Jesus trampled the head of the serpent. He fulfilled the promise of Genesis 3.15 and the promise of Psalm 91.13. You will trample underfoot the serpent. Jesus did that when He resisted the temptation and as He hung on the cross. And so the positivity that's spoken of in Psalm 91 is different than the kind of positivity that's talked about in our culture today. We live and breathe the air of positivity. If something's bad in your life, it's probably not actually your fault. It's probably just the people you're around. They've got negativity. They're bringing negative energy into your life. And if you just surround yourself with positive people, then your life would be a lot better. That might sound good on the surface, but if you examine it underneath, it's hollow. The positivity expressed in Psalm 91, the unfettered confidence expressed here in this psalm is true. It's anchor for your soul, a firm foundation. It's true because Jesus has secured the victory. And so as we continue to fight, as we continue to be made more like Christ, we do so knowing that God has given us victory. And we're not hoping for victory, but we have it in Christ. We will experience it in full when Christ returns again. We don't want to walk off the ditch too far because Christ has given His children victory now. And so if you find yourself this morning trusting in yourself, then the answer to the question, are the promises in Psalm 91 too great? If you're trusting in yourself, the answer is yes. The the promises are too great for you to bear yourself. If you're trusting in Jesus, however, the promises are just right. Because He is our victory. He is our refuge. He is our fortress. And as we abide in Him, we abide in the shadow of the Almighty. It doesn't matter if we're here or if we were in another country. The Lord reigns. He is God Almighty. That's not bound to a specific time, specific place, specific people. That's universal. So as we abide in Christ, We abide in the shadow of the Almighty. 
And we long for and look forward to the day when we experience that victory in full. But until then, we fight knowing, as Paul says in Galatians 2.20, that I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life, I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, Lord, you speak to all of our circumstances. God, whether we find ourselves on a mountaintop, whether we find ourselves in a dark valley, Father, your promises are true. And your promises are not dependent on our circumstances. They're dependent on your son, Jesus. And so, Father, we thank you this morning for his work and his life. It's in his name we pray. Amen.